for the final message of today. Now time for the final message message of today will be our one of our elders, Matthew Steele, entitled God's Disruptive Holy Days. Thank you, Owen. So, are you ready? Are you sure? Are you ready? You know, my boys were 11 years old last weekend, and I don't know what happened over the last 11 years. Just flown by. And um, when they were, I don't know, was it four or five years old, we had a, a movie. You may have heard of it. Uh, it was Cars. Anybody heard of Cars? And uh, who was the star of Cars? Anybody remember? Lightning McQueen. You remember at the, the beginning of the movie, right before he's getting ready to go out into the race? The, uh, the truck driver, I forget the name of the truck driver. What was it? Mater. No, it's not the other truck driver. I forget his name. But anyway, he says, hey, Lightning, are you ready? And do you remember what he says? My boys always used to yell this back out to me when I would say it. Now they're too old to do that. <laughs> Lightning's ready. Only it was, it was a little bit more dramatic than that. It was like, oh, yeah. Lightning's ready. Well, are we ready? We've got some things coming up in our, in our schedule, haven't we? In our calendar for this next few weeks. Are we ready? The time is almost upon us when we'll leave our homes. When we'll pack up the car. We'll load up the kids. We'll head down the road, and then we'll turn back around, because we forgot something, and we'll pick that up. <laughs> right? That's happened. And we will head to the place where God has placed his name, to the Feast of Tabernacles. This year's Feast of Tabernacles. At Branson, right, everybody? It's not too late to change your mind. So we'll head out to the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, are we ready? Because that statement, that description that I just made, might kind of fill you with a little anxiety, a little stress. There's lots to get done between now and then, isn't there? There's so much to get done, and perhaps we're not even sure that we're going to get it all done in time. After all, these holy days sometimes come at the most inconvenient times, don't they? Inconvenient. I mean, we just got the, the kids back to school, didn't we? We just got back to school and got our schedules worked down for after-school activities. And don't even talk about work. It just seems like at this time of year is the time of year when work says, all right, now we can get busy. Right? And we get projects, and we get new demands made upon us, and, 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 and we know that we're going to be gone. 
that can fill us with some anxiety, some stress. So these holy days, they can be demanding. And, and perhaps you don't feel that you're going to get everything done that you feel that you have to do. Perhaps you're serving at the feast. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that, Matt? Because you've got to write a sermon for the feast that you haven't written yet. There's lots of things that, that we have to get ready for. At home, at work, school, maybe some medical conditions that have now flared up right before we go to the feast. Whatever it may be. It's okay to feel this way. It's okay to feel that sometimes things are inconvenient. Even the holy days can feel inconvenient. Although we love them, and we look forward to all the great things that we're going to do at the feast. They present this challenge. We're all subject to the pressures of this life. And to take time away from our obligations, from all the things we have to do, is frankly disruptive. It's just disruptive, isn't it? That is the point. All the holy days are disruptive, aren't they? They disrupt our lives. And God has used these days to inject himself into our schedule. Otherwise, what would our schedule be about? Who would it be about? Me. Right? And the things that I have to do. And you, the things that you have to do. So this is the point of the holy days. God's holy days are designed to be disruptive. They're designed to mess with us a little bit. To stop us in our tracks. They're designed to shake us up. And demand our attention. They are designed to wake us up, to lift up our heads out of this world that we're in, out of the perfectly good things that we engage in in life, but to lift our eyes and our heads up towards something better, something further up and higher that is ahead of us. The holy days of God are disruptive, both on a personal level and as they have been, and as they will be again, disruptive on a global scale. When I think about the next set of holy days, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles with the, the last great day at the end, and what they mean to us personally now and in the future, when I think about those things, I'm reminded of what Paul told us Told, told us as he was telling the Roman church in chapter 13 and verse 11. He says, and do this. You paying attention? Do this. Knowing the time that now it is high time to wake out of sleep for our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Kind of apply that to getting ready for the feast, couldn't you? Like, come on, you haven't picked the place yet. You're sleeping. It's almost here. The night is far spent, he said. The day 
is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and in lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Wow. That's a little harsh, isn't it? A little harsh. All the things that we're concerned about, I mean, they're not all lusts. They're not bad. All the things that we're concerned about completing before we go to the feast, they involve church and family and our job and our responsibilities. They're not wrongdoing. They're good. They're being responsible. Yet, even those things, if we allow those things to become the focus of our time and our energies, those things are just as bad as lusts and envies and strifes to our relationship with God, to our walk with Jesus Christ. Even those things can draw our attention away from what Paul said at first, that now it is high time to wake out of our sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is here. It's that close. It's at hand. The holy days are these incredible times, aren't they? These these events, these periods in our calendar, in our personal calendar, in God's calendar of salvation, in his work on this earth, in the history of this work, this earth. Trumpets, atonement, tabernacles are types of this day that Paul said is is at hand. They represent the final day that is out there ahead of us. For each one of us, there is a day coming that Paul is talking about. In Luke chapter 9, verse 57, as Jesus and his disciples traveled down the road, someone came up to him and said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Isn't that interesting in the light of tabernacles? He didn't even have a tent. He didn't even have a tabernacle to dwell in. And he said to another, Jesus said to another along the way, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Wow. Is he saying that to us? And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and and bid them farewell that are at my house. Let me just tell them that I'm saying goodbye. But Jesus said unto him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I don't mean to be harsh. I don't mean to be harsh at all. Just because we have responsibilities that we're worried about, just because we have these responsibilities that we're leaving in order to go to the feast, does not mean that we're unworthy. But Jesus' words shouldn't be ignored. They should be, in fact, disruptive 
to our thinking. It should disrupt our everyday thinking. Why did God give us these fall festivals every year? We're going to go through some answers. But I want you to keep in the back of your mind as we go through these answers. Why did he give them to you? And to you. And to you. Why did he open your eyes to these holy days? What is he asking you to learn and do with these days? We can start to answer these questions by going back to what was given to the Israelites. If we go back into Leviticus 23 and verse 39. It says, also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. And it shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so, you know, we can go back to when the people were settled into that promised land. And every year after they were settled, on the 15th day of the seventh month, God wanted them to remember this, that he made them to dwell in the, to dwell in tabernacles. But more than that, because the dwelling of, in tabernacles represents something much larger, doesn't it? It represents their liberation. It represents their freedom from oppression and from slavery. When he destroyed the power of Pharaoh, when he broke the back of the enemy, when he shook the world, and he shook the world, and they saw it, and that he wanted them to remember everything that happened, by simply dwelling in these booths, these tabernacles. This was to be a memorial, a celebration of freedom. We enjoy the 4th of July, don't we? Well, some of us do. I'm a little conflicted. Isn't that right, Mark? But that's a celebration of freedom, isn't it? The Feast of the Tabernacles blows that away. That is a celebration of freedom. It is a very disruptive celebration of freedom. Can you imagine all the mothers of you know little ones? You want to go live in a hut for seven days? You what? Right? How many times are you gonna to have to fix the roof because the kids started yanking on it in the middle of the night? It's disruptive, isn't it? Maybe we should be doing that a little bit more. Probably would learn some more lessons about that. 
But let me ask you, the day before they were liberated, the day before the Israelites left Egypt and started living in tabernacles, what were they doing? What do you think that they were doing that day? Well, they were getting ready for a special meal, for one, weren't they? They were getting ready for a big event. But other than that, what were they doing? Well, I imagine they were just living life like they normally would. Mothers were getting their kids out of bed and getting them dressed. and Fathers were fixing a fire, ready to cook some food. They would go out to, to take care of any animals that they may have had. Go, get some, go fetch water for the morning meal. Whatever it may be, however they lived, I'm sure they had to do those things. Everything didn't just pause, right? Because they didn't know what was going to happen. We do. But they didn't fully know what was going to happen and how rapidly things would change for them. So, they would have been doing their chores all the cares and responsibilities of daily life. Just like they had done for their entire life there. There may have even been, may have even been a wedding on that day. People were planning to get married. Now's a good time as any. There may have been some births. Because, you know, babies don't always do what they're told. There may have been some deaths, some burials. Because life and death continue, don't they? they? Just think about what that was like for the children of Israel the days before they were liberated and then began to dwell in booths. And then came that day. The word came out. Pharaoh said we could go. Pharaoh said we could go. God said that like? What was that day like? So they left everything behind. Their entire life. All the places that they grew up and played and, and knew. Yes, they were in slavery. Yes, they were oppressed. But still, human beings have a remarkable ability to still get attached to the places where even, where even oppression So they left. You think their life was a little disrupted? It was. It was definitely disrupted. Their lives would never be the same again. The day after they left Egypt, after they had all left Egypt, what was that like? The places that they called home were still there. But they were empty. It would have been empty, right? I don't think anybody moved, would have moved in all that quick. Certainly not in the land of those cursed people that have been bringing all these disasters on us. So all their homes would have been empty. Except maybe for some of the things that they couldn't carry. A chair or a table. Or some discarded clothing or a child's toy that was overlooked. They were gone. And 
their life in that place stopped. The streets the day before were bustling and people were running and moving and taking care of business and now are empty. Silent. It's broken by the wind. That must have been a very eerie place. Their lives were completely turned upside down and disrupted by living in Booth. By being set free to live in tabernacles. Very much about disruption. But what about us as Christians? Why do we observe these days? Why do we observe the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, certainly we can learn a lot from the experience of Israel and their practice. But the Apostle Paul took the tremendous depth of these holy days. And, and helps us in just a, a small way in this one passage. Helps us understand from a Christian perspective. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1 he says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, this tabernacle is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For we, in this for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive the things done in the body. In this earthly tabernacle. According to what he has, what he has done. Whether good or bad. We all look for this, this earthly tabernacle that we have to be replaced. We are very much dwelling in a temporary dwelling, aren't we? And the older we get, the more temporary And we desire to be not unclothed, but further clothed with a permanent home, a permanent body. Something that we would get when we would enter the land. As Christians, we follow God's holy days and observe the Feast of Tabernacles every year in part because it is a memorial of what we're living now and what is to come. And it is a reminder of the total disruption that God will bring to our lives. To our lives still, at some point in the future. When with a trumpet blast, when that trumpet blasts and splits and disrupts the air that we breathe. And we will hear it and we will feel it. He will disrupt our lives again. 
in a very powerful and permanent way. When we will be changed, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. This is one of the many reasons why we keep the Feast of Trumpets. It is a memorial of this future event, as well as a memorial of past events, personal and historic. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that it is, that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. When this happens, do you think it's going to disrupt your plans for your day? Just a little bit. If we're alive and remain to the coming of Jesus Christ, when we get up that in, in, in that morning, in that day, that moment, when it comes, will certainly disrupt our day. In practicing every year, by going to the feast, every year, we're preparing our hearts and our minds for the day that we'll leave everything in this life behind and step into the actual kingdom of God. Because the reality is, no matter how much we prepare, no matter how much we do at work, at home, wherever we have responsibility, we will not get it all done, will we? Before we have to leave to go to the feast. And that's part of the lesson. That is part of the lesson of keeping the Feast of Tabernacle. There is a day ahead of each one of us, whether we're young or old, strong, weak, living or dead. There's that day that's ahead of us when the trumpet will sound, when we will finally have that atonement, that full manifestation of the atonement and then we'll enter into the kingdom of God. I just think it's so beautiful how these holy days just connect together and paint this picture for us that we can look to, that we can lift up our eyes and look at. And we know, we know this by what our Savior and our Lord has told us in Luke chapter 17, verse 20. It says, now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say here or see there. For indeed the kingdom of God is within you. A lot of interesting stuff. Firstly, the kingdom of God is not going to come through our efforts through our observation, through our making things right, through our doing anything at all, in fact. And it's interesting, isn't it? There's a Christian tradition, probably not as supported today, but there's a Christian tradition that, that kind of says, well, if we can just make the world better, 
then the kingdom of God will come. That is not what Jesus said. Having these observations, following these practices, doing things ourselves will not make the kingdom of God come. And it's not a secret. So that's two important points. It's not a secret. It's going to come in a big event. And it's not just quietly over here and it's not just quietly over there. But then there's something else to remember. That it is also in us. The kingdom of God is in us. Remember that promise that we were given. That guarantee, that spirit that we were given. While we're still living in this tabernacle. So the kingdom of God is in us. But Jesus continued. He then turned to the disciples. And he says, the, day will, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. It's not in these special places. It's not in these secret parts of the earth. It is as disruptive as the sunrise. And you probably don't think of the sunrise as being all that disruptive, right? Because it just happens every day. But to the night, it's pretty disruptive. To the darkness, it's very disruptive. The light of the sun comes higher and higher and completely erases the darkness. We just don't stop to think about it. But when the sun is at its height, our side of the world, darkness has been erased, taken away. The light shines and radiates throughout the land. It's disruptive. And this is what Jesus is about to tell us. In verse 24, he says, For as the lightning that flashes out of one part, of, out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. So we shouldn't get confused here, though. Because it, the way Luke writes it, it, it sounds like we're talking about lightning, like a, a thundercloud, some bolt of lightning coming here. But Matthew makes it more clear. In Matthew 24, 27, he says, For as the lightning, or you could say the lightning, comes from the east and flashes to the west. Well, what is that? What comes out of the east and goes to the west? The sun. So as that lightning comes out of the east, flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Is it daytime right now? And you know it is because it's light outside. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? You cannot miss it. You cannot miss the rising of the sun. And you cannot miss the return of Jesus Christ. That moment will be the very definition of disruption. This will be when the, the moment when mankind's rule on the earth is ended. Done. And the king of kings begins to reign. 
And then Jesus continues back in Luke 17, 25. But first, he must suffer, the Son of Man. Him, himself must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be in this, the days of the Son of Man. They ate and they drank and they married wives and they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate and they drank and they bought and they sold and they planted and they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You know, it sounds very similar to the picture I painted for us when the Israelites left Egypt, right? Life is going to continue. And people are going to be doing all the things that they do, that we do. They'll be eating and drinking, marrying and buying and selling and planting and building. They'll be planning for their children's education. They will be making plans for next week and the week after. They'll be filling in their calendar or their schedule, whatever it may be, may look like, with things that they're going to do. And then they will hear a trumpet blast. They will hear that trumpet blast around the world. And then they'll look up. And they will see the armies of heaven coming through the cloud. <laughs> and everything that they planned, and all their schedules, and all their designs for the future will be totally disrupted by the return of Jesus Christ. And at last we will say the Feast of Tabernacles is fully manifest. The kingdom of God is fully manifest on the earth. Every life on earth in that single moment will never be the same again. Then Jesus continued. He says, In that day, he who is on his housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. I mean, that sounds a little silly. Oh, Jesus is returning. Let me go get my goods. Are you kidding? Jesus is returned. <laughs> who cares about your goods? This is totally disruptive. This is a new world. Why? That former life is over. It's meaningless. Everything that was important about that life is done. Not unlike the things that we think about when we're trying to get ready to go to the feast. Yeah, they're important. But they're not as important as observing the Feast of Tabernacles, at setting our face toward where God has placed his name and going there. And then he said, and likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you that in the night there will be two men in one bed, and one will be taken, and the other will be left. 
And there'll be two women grinding together, and one will be taken and the other left. And two men will be in the field, and the one will be taken and the other left. Now, it's really funny to me that we have so much, so many churches in, in the Christian tradition around the world that use this scripture to prove a secret rapture. I mean, that's pretty clever if you can prove a secret rapture out of this scripture. Because we just got through understanding that the whole world is going to know what's happened. Because the whole world is going to see it as surely as they see the sun rise. And yet they will say, well, that one's taken away and that one's taken away. And then we have a whole industry of bumper stickers that say, what? In the event of rapture, this car will be unoccupied. I mean, I, I guess people have made some money out of it. That's not what he's saying here. And I'm sure the disciples probably were a little puzzled by what he was talking about. And in fact, I'm certain they did. Because they asked the question. I don't know if you've realized this before. But they asked him the question. They said, and they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? Where are they taken? And he answers them. With a puzzle. With a riddle. He said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. That's his answer. What is that all about? What did he mean by this? Well, I think we can determine from the context that the eagles are the people that are taken. Because they are at a place where they've been taken to. They are gathered around a body. So the next question is, Whose body? Whose body are they gathered around? I believe it to be Jesus. Jesus' body. He is the body that the eagles are gathered around. And I believe this because of a series of scriptures. But first, we have to ask ourselves a question. Why are eagles gathered around a body in the first place? If you were to see eagles gathered around a body, what would you think that they are doing? They're maybe um, resuscitating the guy? Eating. They're eating. Having a light snack. Or a full meal, depending on how many eagles are there. Remember back in John, chapter 6, and verse 51, Jesus caused a lot of controversy for the little statement that he said about eating. I dare say it was disruptive to the conversation. He said in verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. And the Jews, therefore, quarreled amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Ugh. That's 
wrong with this? This is not good. It's not even biblical. You're not supposed to eat people. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed, and he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. And of course we know later at the Passover meal before his sacrifice, Jesus showed them the symbols of his body and of his blood, of the bread and of the wine. And we continue that tradition as we observe Passover. But that's not all he meant. Because the people of God are these eagles that have been taken from their lives on Jesus' return. And then they are also the ones that have been spiritually eating of his body. Because they're gathered around his body. And they have spiritually drunk his blood. And remember the manna that Jesus referenced. Remember that manna that came down on the Israelites while they were in the wilderness? While they were living in tabernacles? Isn't that interesting? We've got this bread from heaven that we associate, rightly so, as Jesus with Passover, and yet it was also delivered to them for their entire life as they lived in tabernacles. And it came down on them while they lived before they entered into the land. And this makes me wonder. Makes me wonder about the future. Because if they were consuming this bread from heaven while they lived in tabernacles, when we are in the kingdom of God, will we again, in a spiritual form, in a new way, feed on the body and the blood of Jesus Christ? Interesting. So, those that are taken at the return of Jesus Christ to, to this, when he's returned to this earth, they are in fact the saints. They are these eagles that Jesus referenced. Those of us who are alive and remain, as Paul would say. And this makes sense in another way. Because there's a scripture that references eagle. In Isaiah chapter 40, Verse 28. It says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But what does he say? But those who wait on the Lord, those who serve the Lord, 
that wait on him patiently and serve shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. It was no accident that Jesus chose to answer their question with this puzzle. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. No accident. Of course, we know that he was the one that inspired the prophet Isaiah to write these words. And I wonder, how are we renewing our strength? How do we renew our strength? doing it right now. We are eagles right now gathered around the body of Jesus Christ. What does the scripture say? Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, what does he say? There I am. What else is his body? Well, he's the living word. This word that we are feeding upon right now is the body of Jesus Christ. (laughs) We are, as these eagles, just chewing up this fantastic meal as we study his word and bring it into our minds, into our nature, into that spirit nature that will live on in our new body as God gives it to us. Does our heart not swell when we understand the word of God, when we see something that we hadn't seen before, when we are reminded of his truth, we are filled, aren't we? Because we feed upon his, him, we feed upon his word. This is how our strength is renewed daily. Strength that can carry us through our lives, through our times of stress. So all of this begs the question, question that the disciples asked in the beginning. Where are all the eagles going to be gathered? Where are they going to be gathered? Where are all those that are taken from the earth? Those that were in the field or in their bed or or working grinding at the mill. Where are they going to be taken? In heaven? Around Jesus' glorified body? Not at all at the risk of probably stealing somebody's scripture on Monday, if you would, turn to Zechariah 14. Because amongst the very troubling and powerful verses that we're given, uh, that we're given here, we're also given the location, the location of where the eagles will be gathered. And it's critical for us to understand where the saints, where we will be gathered. It says in verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravaged. Half of the city shall go in captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. We're joining this at this awful battle. There's just terrible things being done in this city, this city of peace. Again, filled with war. Then, something happens.
then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Where is that? Right here on the earth. Just out of sight of Jerusalem, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. And half the mountain shall be moved toward the north half toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley as the mountain valley shall reach Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints wow, all the saints with you. All there. Gathered right next to Jerusalem where the king is. And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day. In that day it shall be. The Lord is one. And his name one. You will be right here. On the earth. Where all the eagles are gathered. And then turn over to Revelation 19 and verse 11. It says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. The Logos, Jesus Christ. This is Jesus. If you've never read this passage before, this is him returning. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. With it, he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is going to be on this earth and talk about disruptive. Talk about a totally disruptive time on this earth. Disruption can be good. You know, we may not like it when our commute to work is disrupted by an accident. But when this kind of disruption happens, it is good. The return of Jesus Christ, the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth, it will not be a secret thing. It will be seen throughout the world. It will end all other forms of government. We love democracy. It's the best, 
that we've come up with so far, that we've come up with, it'll be done. No more democracy. We'll be back to a monarchy. Us English people will feel much better about that. But a monarchy of goodness and truth, of justice, and above all, grace. Grace will rule supreme in the kingdom of God. His government will put down all the proud. He will raise up the humble. You look at all the antics this past week, and pick a week, in our political system around the world. Don't you just want to see the proud bring down a little bit and the humble exalted for once? It will happen. It will restore justice and grace, as I said before, will abound. And it will gather all the eagles, all the eagles, you and me, and all the saints that have ever lived will be gathered. We will be gathered home, never to roam again. We will be gathered around the glorified body of the lion and the lamb, Jesus Christ. And where is he? On the earth. Right here on the earth. Turning back to Zechariah 14 and verse 16, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. Who goes up? Just those strange Church of God people that go to church on Saturday? Everyone will go up. Remember, it's not a democracy anymore. It's a monarchy. And the king is the law. Everyone will be forced to enjoy the Feast of Tabernacles. That'll be amazing. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, when we're at the feast and we're just full of joy and, and we're, we're having so much fun and we're learning and we're rejoicing before God and the people around us that we, you know, when we go to events or whatever it may be, they're not in the church and they don't know. Well, we just long for that day when they will know. So as we pre prepare for this year's feast, when we become overwhelmed, perhaps, with everything that we have to do, and before we go and start to think how disruptive these holy days are to my schedule, remember this. There is a day out there for each and every one of us if we remain faithful. There's a day out there. And on that day, the Father will turn to the Son and say, Go. It's time go. And on that day, Jesus will return in power and in strength and will shake and disrupt the whole earth again. 
that'll be glorious. And we will lay down all our worries, all of our concerns, all of our struggles, all of our fears. We'll drop it all right where we are. We'll walk away from that life and step into the kingdom of God on earth. If you think that the holy days are disruptive now, just wait until you're plucked out of your bed. Or that you're yanked from the field. Or you're dragged from working at the mill. As all the eagles are gathered home.